Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranla, called but of a gun put into the back of your skull, that's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm Not Here to Hurt You, a brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Wackley, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. And today I'm really delighted to talk to one of the more interesting figures in the Dublin and Irish tech scene, Eamon Leonard, who has had a very storied career over the last 10 to 20 years in Dublin. Eamon, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having us. Well, us, you're the only British I know, it's a Dublin slang, you know. Uh, <laughs> Eamon, you describe yourself as a community activist, a founder, angel investor, a software engineer, and you've you've been through the mill on a lot of companies. Now, we're going to talk about the company that you, uh, together with Dee Coakley and Amy, uh, Emily Castles, have founded and are building at the moment. But I'm, I want to go through some of the other stuff that you've done uh, over the years uh, as well. You made your name... Uh, you were always a reasonably well-known figure in the community here, but in 2011, you made your name when you sold Orchestra to Engine Yard. Uh, a long time ago. Uh, a long time ago, yeah. eight years ago. Yeah. And and what happened just after that I, w- is what I'm going to start with, because you um, you say in your own bio that you built and failed to sell a company. It's one of your rare yeah. misses. And of course, that's what I'm going to start with. Okay. Um, but... So that company was Cohort. And yeah. I remember you describing it to me at the time. It was 2014 or 2015. It was actually at the Web Summit and you were showing me. It was it was, it was was like a really um, useful version of LinkedIn based on the power of networking and who might be able to, to really help you out uh, on a certain issue. And you... Uh, everything seemed to be going grand. You, you took some seed money for it yeah. um, from some really good entrepreneurs, some, actually some fantastic entrepreneurs, Ray Nolan, the founders of, of GitHub as well. And for one reason or another, it didn't work out. For lots of reasons. For lots of reasons. <laughs> but while I was interested, you wrote a really excellent blog post, and I think it, 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 it brought an awful lot of comfort to a lot of founders who might have been in your position after that. And you, you went through how you were feeling when that startup uh, didn't make it, or, or, or ultimately you had you had to shut it down. Um, you c- can can you tell me anything? Can you tell me about that? Opening up the wound here, Adrian. Um, yeah, like bunch of mistakes, and you benefit of hindsight to be able to pick that apart. Even when I wrote that that post, I, I was still too close to the action to probably mm. be able to um, analyze and reflect upon it. Um, a couple of big mistakes that I'll never do again. Um, being a solo founder probably is up there. You know? right. So I thought, and this is probably a bit of the arrogance and the ego that comes with having an exit behind you. You're, you're like, well, if I did it before, I could do it again. But it's also kind of like what you see. Um, you know, bands that have a, had a breakout album, uh, they struggle with the, set, the difficult second album. I think there's a bit of that in there as well, right? So I... Uh, I naively thought that I could take on a big problem and I could do it by myself and hire the team I, I needed to do so. Um, what I missed, um, and that's obvious to me now, um, was the the benef- benefit from having 
co-founders who are able to share the kind of burden that employees probably shouldn't share. Mm-hmm. There's a psychological and emotional, never mind a kind of <clears throat> like a risk um, um, profile there that um, that you can share with your co-founders. And the types of things that keep you awake at night, because there will be things that keep you awake at night, regardless of how many co-founders you have. It, there's comfort in knowing that you can, you're not the only one worrying about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so that was probably my first first mistake, letting that kind of that kind of uh, arrogance in, uh, affect my decision making. Um, I think I think uh, there's well, the problem I was taking on was massive, right? So LinkedIn has been around for about 12, 14, 15 years. They have a massive amount of data. But I felt that that data wasn't being adequately used to solve the kinds of problems that could be solved. Um, I felt it was more focused on um, transactional relationships rather than deep and meaningful relationships that exist in a business context. Mm-hmm. Um, social capital, you know, who, how can I use my network to create value? Uh, or how can I help other people's networks to create value for them? Which, I mean, really, that's the first rule of networking. How how can I be helpful to other people? And like real money, social capital is acquired over time and it's invested, uh, but it's also lost. But you were right. I mean, I remember uh, the way you described it to me at the time, and I've seen it since with other companies and, uh, and the, the, the networking effect you're talking about, and particularly here in Ireland. I mean, a couple of weeks ago at the Web Summit, yeah. uh, I was at a thing called Flounders, which I'm sure you know well, which is... I was there. Yeah. yeah sorry, of course you were there, right? <laughs> I, I saw you there. Sure. We... we, we hung out and we chatted. Um, um, but that is a networking event that w- essentially, which is a collection of Irish people, which you, it's very difficult to actually find in Ireland. In one place in at one, one time. Place at for one for time. a certain reason. For a certain reason. I mean, I guess that's a good sign because yeah. it means we're all busy doing stuff. Yeah. Right? If, if that was av- freely available on a weekly basis, then... Uh, we're, we're probably a bunch of chancers. No, listen, 100%. <laughs> but the point you were making, though, about the company was, I thought it was a good one. But in the aftermath, you, as I said, you, you, you wrote this really good post and leave aside the actual company itself and what it did right or what it did wrong or whether its, its aims were off. It's the way you said you were feeling at the time that I think a lot of people connected with. Um, at the time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was raw. And um, I'll be honest and say that um, I've probably only just gotten back to myself, mm. like in the last few months. And um, I think when you, um, regard, regardless of whether you're a solo founder or you, um, you combine your energies with, with co-founders, you have to put, and you may not even be consciously thinking about this, it kind of comes at the territory, you have to put or you end up putting a lot of your emotional self in it, emotional investment in it, you become synonymous with the company. This company becomes synonymous with you um, if you're doing things right. Mm. I mean, to, to, to get any kind of traction, to uh, achieve any kind of growth, you have to put yourself out there with the company. You have to market in the early days who you are as much as the company. In fact, your first round of investment will likely be in who you are mm. and less likely be in, um, you know, a spreadsheet. Well, you know. maybe then that, you, if I was looking at this uh, ob- objectively, I would have thought that the founders of Git- GitHub and Raynon and people like that and Investing Seed was, a, was kind of a tribute to you. But the way you wrote it, um, I, I went on your blog post and because I, I, I look at that blog post about once a year. No way. I do, really? Yeah, yeah just, oh, just to, to, to remind <laughs> myself. And the way you described it was, you said, maybe I could have worked more hours. Maybe I could have worked harder or smarter or whatever. Maybe I could have had one more investor meeting or yeah. focus more on marketing, customer development. Maybe I should have driven, I should have been more driven on usage and engagement. Maybe I should have been open to that quiet voice in the back of my head telling me that this was never going to work. And I would say that most founders that yeah. I've spoken to at some point have definitely had that in the back of their head. Yeah, um, I think it's, uh, I, you, 
I think it is healthy to have a little bit of self-doubt. It, it kind of keeps you in check or gives you a bit of balance. I think um, then it's down to the individual how to manage that and what their personality is like. In my case, um, I'm definitely and always have been an optimist and that has largely fared me well. However, there are times where it blinds me to things that other people that may be a little bit more realist um, can see. And it's a double-edged sword. You really mm. need the optimism to get you through the early, the hard stuff that comes early stage, um, or really any stage startup. You need that optimism, that 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 healthy outlook. Mm. Um, but like I said, the double-edged sword is it blinds you to the obvious. So there were probably things that people could see that I, I wasn't listening to, you know. Um, and uh, but ultimately, like I said. You put a, you put a lot of that uh, of yourself into it, um, all your hopes and dreams and your fears and doubts. And uh, when it mm. goes away, then all that goes away with it. And so, you have to kind of rebuild. Because uh, you like one of the reasons while you were well known in the community here, you were regularly touted as you know one of the success stories of Dublin when you uh, exited or you sold um, orchestra to to Engine Yard. Was was that a contrast. Oh yeah, I mean, it's like an imposter syndrome kind of thing. You, you're, there's, there's definitely a, a pressure, and, mm. but that pressure, you're kind of feeling that pressure. You let, you let le your ego get in the way of that. Mm. Uh, like I said, the arrogance thing is there. You know, you're, you, uh, you, um, you there's, it's a reputational thing. You're like, well, I've worked so hard to do this. The next thing I do has to be really good, and if it isn't really good, then. Oh, so much of your identity is wrapped up in it. Like, mm. you, it, it's, it, it's, you get into a kind of existential kind of questioning, like, who even am I? What's the po Why do I get out of bed in the morning? What's the point of this? Well, and, you said you, you identified know. with the Ping founder, Carl, what's his name? Um, guy, he's, he founded Ping.com. Oh, yeah. Uh, Carl Martin. Carl and Martin. He, because he spoke... He, <clears throat> he, he really went, went, went really deep on his analysis of yeah. that and I couldn't, he said everything that I wanted to say that I, I couldn't. But he called it depression, he called it yeah. post-founder depression, that's what he called it. He's, he's correct, he's absolutely mm. correct and um, look, you go into these things with your eyes open, right? Like I don't want to be sitting here like wanting people to feel sorry for me, you know, uh, everybody as an adult chooses their own path in life and this is a path that I chose and I honestly don't think I, I could do like a a normal a normal job I know because I've tried mm. <laughs> since since the demise of cohort I've tried to do like normal work w w that people require not the breadth of of experience that a founder has but the kind of more narrow focus around a particular discipline and I you know I'm probably not suited to most jobs but that's we all make our decisions in life, and you go into into something that as risky as early stage startups. You put your your personal well being on the line. You put your financial well being on the line. You you possibly bring other people along that risky journey with you, and you go in it with your eyes open. And when when it works out, everybody's happy. And like you said, people You're are being, hero. people are being touted. And I don't know if that's deserved. But when it doesn't work out, well, you kind of have to. You have to deal with it. I'm not saying suck it up, but you have to deal with it. And it, and it, everybody deals with it in their own way. Um, I, I think what Carl said about it being a, a what was it a founder, post founder depression. Post founder depression. Like it. you're kind of you, like I said, you're you're left with this like, well, what do I do now? And there are, there's no book you can read to tell you what to do now. There's no careers guidance counselor that you can go to. Um, like I went, I went to, I went to, I tried to find a, th a therapist that could help me. I went to two different ones and. I don't think there's a therapist out there that understands the founder journey. Like it didn't, I wasn't able to find the help I needed. And at, in the, at the end of the day, talking through things with friends who were also founders and had been through this was, was a huge help and time, mm. time, time, uh, time is really what it takes. We have a bit of a hero thing that we have with successful founders. I mean, I'm part, I'm part of that. Well, there's a whole well. glorification there is. that goes on from all, not just founders. It's, it's like, even if you're, it's by association, if you're working at a mm. successful company and you're wearing the t-shirt or if you're an investor, there's, there's a whole bullshit hype, uh, kind of, um, environment around it. Mm. And it's probably not healthy long term. Um, especially if you've been exposed to some more toxic sides of it or if you've been exposed, if, if you haven't seen the success that you think 
well, nobody's owed to success, but it's easy to fall into that trap where you think, well, if everybody else has it, why can't I? Mm. Um, but, um, but you were on the other side of that as well. I mean, yeah. I, this is, I've mentioned orchestra and engine yard. But when that happened, you were the hero. Yeah, and that was a surprise to me. Um, like, that was a company that, it was barely a company. Like, we, we, we funded it from consulting work. We didn't have any investors. And we launched it in January of 2011, no, February 2011. And we were bought by August of 2011. And the actual sale process kicked off in May, right? So That's very quick. It, it, like it was never in, in the plan. Oh no, I can definitely say it was never in the plan because we didn't even have a plan. We had no clue what we were doing. We just knew that this was a problem that existed yeah. for 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 a certain type of developer, and it, we thought it was a big enough problem that it w was worth our time investigating while we were also doing work on the side. And um, so, I mean, I was surprised as the next person. I'll never forget the day that I got the offer. It was twice what we thought it would be. Mm. Um, and I mean, it fundamentally changed my life and it enabled me to impact other people's lives, founders and the wider community. Um, and, and that was, that was great. Uh, I really enjoyed that, um, that kind of, that period. I was only thinking yesterday, the funny thing about like, and maybe this is part of me in my forties now, right? So maybe this part comes with the territory of, I don't know, are we middle-aged Adrian? Yes, we are. Uh, but okay. anyway, let's right. go on, continue. <laughs> um, you you don't you don't I was thinking about about you know I, I used to run an event called Pub Standards and um, I hosted a bunch of meetups and really that's where a lot of my community activism was when I bringing people together who are building stuff making stuff and just really just trying to f physically join the dots like you should talk to this person over here who has just walked in because they're building something that you know something about and literally I would drag people together and tell them to talk and I was only thinking yesterday about how you don't realize. Um, you're in the good old days until you're not in the good old days, right? And I'm not saying these aren't the good old days because in another five years, I'll probably look back at this time and go, well, they were the good old days. So I think that really is just underscores the, the fact that you should try and live in the moment as much as possible mm -hmm. and to and to not let the day-to-day the -day drudgery pull you down, which especially on a, a rainy November evening, uh, afternoon even, uh, well, it's I easy to let that happen, you know? You're the one who brought up age and middle age, so I'm going to run with it for a second now. Good man, good man. Um, <laughs> uh, I find in one's 40s uh, that there is a certain sense of contentment and ability to cope with a rainy day in November. So I, the way I look at it, maybe it's just because the days are getting shorter because I'm getting older. Like a day that was 24 hours, 10 or 20 years ago now seems to be 18 hours now or so. It, like time is starting to get shorter. You mean time's moving faster for you? Time's moving faster, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Now maybe well, that, I may, I'm that reading, comes at old age. Well, maybe I'm reading too many <laughs> Clive James poems since he passed away. And he. this was a topic that he focused on an awful lot, actually almost kind of morosely for the last couple of years of his life. He wrote poems and most of it seems to be about time passing and approaching the time when you know you're going to die and how to value Isn't Isn't moment. that half of Leaving Sir uh, English? Uh, isn't half yeah. of the, the book of soundings is about Basically, the passage of time and getting old? We're all going to be dead. So it's actually a theme that I'm coming back to more and more um, even in these podcasts. But, um, but in terms of saying what you could do for the community and investing and taking bets. I mean, you yourself actually took some bets on, on other companies and some of them have come out very nicely. I mean, you were an er a relatively early investor in Intercom, for example. Yeah. And that must be paying your mortgage for you. I mean, yeah, you must be doing okay out of that. Um, it's 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 wonderful to, to see the impact that um, that company has had uh, on Dublin. Um, people are being brought up to world-class standards of, of technical education and capability and now like the Ireland that I grew up in if you were technical you were you probably wouldn't have the chance to go work for a multinational or in, in, in another country mm. uh, because the just the stuff you'd be exposed to in Ireland would be fairly Irish like mm. small parochial um, not globally scaled and um, companies like Intercom I think have given um, um, uh, the 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 technical knowledge working um, side of the Irish workforce, the opportunity to be 
probably for the first time um, uh, to be globally focused, globally globally capable, mm. and it could really work. Those people could work anywhere in the world. Why did you take a bet on that company? Uh, I, I'd known the founders mm. um, pretty well. Um, so you're betting on the founders? Yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, <laughs> I remember uh, saying to them before the uh, deal with Engineer closed, before I even had the money to say I would I would invest in them because we had been kind of competitors. We had a uh, I had a small consulting company and they had a small consulting mm. company. We would often compete on the same pieces of work, but then we would also kind of meet up and kind of share notes and kind of talk about how tough that stuff was. And so over time, got to, to see how they thought about product and built it. And it was a kind of a no-brainer for me. Mm. I wasn't even sure what it was they were building. I don't even think they had a name for it at the time. I just knew that they were working on something new. And um, Well, I think uh, they had just gotten over their, was it Quitter? No, what was the, it was uh, a Twitter? Exceptional. Oh, what was it called? Exceptional. Oh, exceptional, was it? Was oh, that it? There was, there was Quitter as well. There was Quitter as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Quitter's the one that usually gets brought up in their... <clears throat> Um, in their uh, exceptional was a way more successful product. Mm. Yeah, it was a developer focused tool. Mm. And those guys have a particularly Des Trainer, who is an occasional guest on on this podcast. Um, they've not that far away from your ethos. They've kind of stay engaged in the community, particularly Des. Who will do talks. Will will turn up to things. They are definitely anchored here. Well, you have to think of it as an ecosystem, mm. um, and um, companies. Um, I think companies that are going to be successful and whatever success means um, are ones that recognize that they are in an ecosystem. Um, they contribute to it and they take from it. Mm. And there are other people in that ecosystem who are doing the same. And it makes sense to um, to um, when you can contribute more than you take to do so. Um, long term, that benefits everybody. But it, I mean, if you're a growing company and you need to hire people, that's going to benefit you. Mm. Mm. A couple of other random ones. Circa was a new, a new service. Yeah, they were. Um, they were before American. their time. Yeah. They were definitely before their time. They were. They they took an interesting approach to news. You could follow a news story as it developed, and it would um, give you um, uh, kind of snippets, um, uh, digestible, easily digestible chunks of information. Um, they had a very high standard when it came to um, bias or not having bias. Mm. And um, they package it up very nicely in a, in a very easy to use and intuitive mobile interface. I think the real power was on the back end. Um, I'm, I'm still good friends with Mark Alligan, uh, who was the CEO and founder. Mm. And um, it, it's, it's interesting the lessons he's learned from that as well. Um, so I think that was acquired by Sinclair, I think, at the time in the States uh, yeah. uh, four or five years ago. And I think it's just a few months ago that they, they Sinclair actually shuttered it. They actually shut it down. Yeah, it, it's that's. But it was acquired, and you were it, an early investor. It was, yeah, but it, it was it small was, amount. Yeah, I mean, it was they were they were they were struggling, mm. and um, they had their, their own challenges. And sure, it's an acquisition. You can put it down as an acquisition, but you know. Listen, I'm chalking it up as one of the successes. Stop ruining my buzz here. Sorry, man. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about Boundless, about okay, your your, yeah. your new company, um, together with uh, Emily Castles and Dee Coakley. You founded uh, this uh, company. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about it. Not doing the solo founder thing. Nope. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've known Dee and, and Emily for a couple of years, um, and um, I had a, I had. I had previously this year been doing a little bit of consulting for a company um, in the States, helping them with their European um, kind of um, footprint, shall we say. Was it uh, Scout? Scout, yeah. yeah. And um, I wasn't really happy. Um, and uh, it, it wasn't, it, I think I think it was the fact that it was a mature product and people liked using it and they had customers and I was like, I'm not really sure where my impact is here. Like, yeah. uh after after a few months of that, I I, I, I realized that my happiness was probably directly related to f focusing on creating something and building something around that um, because that's kind of the mode I've been in for the last <clears throat> 10 or 12 years. Mm -hmm. So I um, I made a decision to leave and two days later I bumped into Dee at, at an event in Dogpatch and we caught up over coffee and she told me about this idea, um, which is to make it easy to... 
uh, employ people for uh, who work for international companies in other countries, mm. make it easy to um, um, make those companies compliant with local HR and employment law. Um, Why can't I, they do that now? Um, bureau- bureaucracy, lack of lack of uh, harmonisation across countries. Um, it being the fact that remote work is really only something that's popped up in the last five or ten years and you know tax authorities and governments just aren't prepared to be able to and probably never will be prepared mm. to work with each other on it um but it was it was something i'd encountered at scout i tried to hire people in europe for them but um um they only wanted to hire contractors and nobody wanted to be a contractor they wanted to be full-time employed so mm. i said hey you, you're gonna have to set up a company in ireland and they said well we don't want to do that mm. <laughs> so well you're probably not gonna be able to hire anybody then so um uh, I also encountered this problem at Engine Yard where I had, had people moving around um, uh, to other countries. And, you know, we were we were working uh, off a, a semi-remote model at that stage. So everything was in, in Slack and video calls. And uh, sure, we were a cloud company, so it was all in the cloud. You could, if you've got a laptop and an internet connection, mm. away you go. Um, but, um, you know, the COO at, uh, and HR director weren't happy with the idea of people going to other countries because there was a lot of administrative overhead um, to set up and then a monthly kind of recurring investment on that. Um, and it would be just much cleaner to have everybody in the same place. It took mm-hmm. actually six months just to get somebody set up in, in Berlin that moved from Dublin. So I'd encountered this problem before and when she described it to me, I, I said like, that's not a very sexy problem. <laughs> but I think it's one that a lot of people have. Yeah. Um, like, you know, the cohort thing was a sexy problem. Everybody, you know, it's an app, it's a big data machine learning, it's AI, it's, you know, it's um, people being able to quickly find the benefit of their network. Um, but, uh, I think I think these days the opportunities are in places that I haven't seen the benefit of modern product development, the benefit of of um, of of um, certainly the benefit of remote teams coming together to solve a problem. There's a lot lot of lot of opportunity and kind of you know business processes, overheads, the, mm. the stuff that largely happens behind the scenes, but hasn't. You haven't really seen a lot of love and attention from from good user experience. So, what, what basically does does Boundless do? How does it cut through a lot of that stuff? So, uh, we co-employ people on behalf of our customers. Uh, okay. So, um, this really is the timing is I think is right for something like this because you have this convergence of two trends about where people work and how they work. Mm. And technology has kind of supercharged that, uh, as well as the kind of conventions and norms that have um, popped up over the last five years in particular. Mm. So um, there's a certain class of worker that can work anywhere. Um, so we call them knowledge workers. So mm. anybody that uses a laptop to create something and uh, or to work on something and has an internet connection to do that. Um, <clears throat> and... Um, the, uh, the like I said, the tools are there to enable them to be to collaborate, um, to communicate, build trust as part of a team, and the conventions, um, culturally how people work, um, those conventions are there now as well, and best practices. And there's billion dollar companies out there operating off this, mm. this kind of model. Um, but to do it in a compliant way is has been a sticking point. Um, so what a lot of companies will do is that they will have people on contract, in. Uh, in remote countries and the problem with that is is that um, those employees or those individuals they're not employees they're contractors they don't get the benefit of being an employer an employee a full-time employee in their home country mm. they don't get the benefit of employ employee rights employment law they don't get the benefit of maybe social services that full-time employees get that contractors don't get um, and um, and it's an increasingly a problem for governments because there's this hole appearing in their in their mm, population that, that yeah. isn't covered by that. And there's probably a bit from the government's perspective of there's a potential for lost tax revenue, but I I, I don't think that's the main problem. So if I'm following <coughs> you correctly, does do you step in and essentially virtually locate yourself in these countries? Yeah, so we become- we're in the process of of putting in place corporate infrastructure um, across multiple countries so that we can be the employer of record for these individuals on behalf of 
uh, our customers. So the, being the employer of record means that we um, process monthly payroll, we file taxes with the local tax authority, um, we issue pay slips, um, distribute salaries, Christmas, and Christmas parties, and ensure, yeah. <laughs> and we ensure um, we ensure compliance with with local uh, employment law. Um, and the working relationship is managed by the customer, which is the employer. Um, so they manage the day-to-day -day ins and outs of the employee's mm. workload. And um, it enables them to hire people where they want. The whole point of remote work is to be able to hire from a global talent pool. Mm. And um, this is this the fact that, you know, the fact that uh, people need to be compliant, mm. but when they try to do it in a compliant way, they realize they're kind of hamstrung on it. So if you're to do this yourself, it means that for every country that you have a contractor in that you want to make a full-time employee, you have to set up your own entity mm. or register with the tax authority so or both. There's a monthly overhead that comes in with dealing with like different languages, different tax systems, different payroll structures, mm. um, different filings. So we, we, sense we abstract away all that pain and, yeah. and we take that on board so our customers don't have to. Mm. And um, um, yeah, uh, so it's like it's early days. It's a yeah. big it's a big challenge. Um, and uh, you're hiring. Yeah, we're hiring. We've uh, we've uh, we've got eight people now. Eight people. Yeah. Um, we were three people in August. Mm -hmm. So um, and of course, we're we're distributed. Uh, so we've got only three people in Dublin. And the rest are, are remote. Um, I was talking to uh, Mark Roden, who is the chief executive and founder of Ding, Ding which yeah. is the top of mobile top up company. And he was saying that they opened an office in London almost exclusively so that they could hire a couple of people who said that they weren't going to move to Dublin um, uh, for to to help expand the company. Oh, uh, so if they moved to Dublin, there, there would be challenges with housing or. Oh, and, and all the rest oh, yeah, and, yeah. and maybe just because they're happy where they are now yeah. you might find somebody in London or somewhere someone in Paris or Berlin and they might like living there it may not be a bias against Dublin it might not even be the cost of housing they just want to live in London they might be a West Ham supporter you know yeah. well yeah I mean but this is the thing if, if, you've, if you if your job entails you sitting in front of a laptop and typing stuff mm. on a daily basis, then you That's, you have that luxury and privilege to be able to yeah. yeah but you 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 there is no reason. Um, Do you know what? That's uh, this is a thing that comes comes up every year: the remote working thing. And in theory, someone like me, for example, should be able to uh, work you know, from home from a coffee shop. And mm. I actually do for about an hour or two every day. I usually yeah. bring a laptop, I have the iPad Pro in front of me here, and I will actually literally just for a change of scene yeah. for an hour or two. Yeah. And that's around my own, that's around the way that I work and um, I find I'm more productive Whatever makes way. it productive. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. actually, when it comes down to it, even people who could work remotely, when you get into a, a long conversation with managers or bosses about it, or, or even uh, colleagues, they still come back to this idea that they kind of like people being in the same vicinity. Well, that's a cultural kind of challenge and, and there's a shift taking place. And what I would say to leaders of organizations that think that way is that there are organizations out there that don't think that, think that way. And mm. sooner or later, you're going to have people leave to go to those organizations. Mm. So... And it's not simple. It's not as simple as saying you can work from it wherever either. There's there is a mindset change in terms of how people communicate, the tools they use to do so, how they plan and collaborate and be productive, and the tools they use to do so. So it's a kind of a journey, a structural train change and a cultural change that an organisation needs to go on to be able to get to the point where they can, they can say, well, we have hired people to do a job and we trust them to do that job and they can prove that they're doing that job by very clear um, pieces of output uh, that have value mm. and uh, the tools are there to do it the conventions are there, there to do it and it is um it is it, it's a it's it's i wouldn't even say it's a trend it has movement it's mm. This is this is the way it's going to be de facto in 10 years time you got like young kids who are like They've grown up with iPads, mm. you know. They're probably hitting 
late primary, early secondary school now, right? I think there's you a know, lot by to By that the time they come yeah. out into the workforce, what, <clears throat> you think they're going to want to be chained to a desk? Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's an awful lot to that thesis. Even if you think of the amount of airtime uh, that the idea of kids and young adults spending in t- time in front of a screen, and, and sometimes it's it's spoken about as a negative thing, as a bad thing, that they're not, they don't have their head up. But yeah. I suppose one corollary of that is that at the age 21 or 25, <clears throat> they may be better able or conditioned to work a screen maybe yeah, for long and, periods of time. And the kind of stress that comes with that, the context mm. switching, the, the maybe dealing with a lot of inbound stuff and kind of notifications and mm. stuff. I, I agree. Like, you know, I think they're, I think, I think you, as a parent, you should be cautious of putting too much screen time in front of your mm. kids, regardless of what the screen is, be it TV or a phone or a, a tablet. Um, and I think that's up to every parent to, to manage and make that call themselves. But Do you know what's funny? It's always the techies who are, <laughs> are the biggest Nazis. And I don't know Nazi is the wrong word, but <coughs> the, the most, the biggest sticklers on that. I know. It's funny. I had a conversation with a Silicon Valley VC about, about six years ago, uh, around the time my first child was, was due. And uh, I said to him, um, I knew he was a parent. And I said, do you have any, any parenting advice? And he said, keep them away from, from digital technology for as long as possible. And just a cognitive dissonance there. I was like, what? It's uh, what? <laughs> funny, isn't it? But, I, yeah. you know, I see, I, I see what he means and where he's coming from, mm. you know. Um, it's usually, that's often a first child syndrome, though. By the time the second or the third, or if there is a third or even a fourth, comes along, yeah, they're fine. <laughs> you yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're fine. They got the, whatever the equivalent of Peppa Pig is now on YouTube yeah. Kids. Yeah, they're grand. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, it's, um, like in our day, they would, they, in well, my day anyway, they, they'd let the second, third kid out and yeah, you know, see, half seven, eight o'clock. Don't come in until where's, the uh, Where's Seamus? <laughs> ah, he's somewhere around. It's fine. It's a different time. Different That's time. the other thing. You were talking about the passage of time mm-hmm. there and just how, how kind of the older you get, the faster things seem to go. But, um, particularly for our generation, the older you get, the further from um, the further from the time we grew up in you get, but not because of time, but because of technological advances. Mm. I'm starting to get down now, but <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm, I, but you're, you're, in, you're absolutely right. So like we're now at the stage where we can say, I even use the, the phrase in my day or when I was a kid. And get off in, my porch. Increasingly, <laughs> when I was a kid, yeah. translates to anybody I'm talking to as, you know, 30 years ago, you know? Yeah. And, and, and increase and longer. Yeah. Spare thought for the people who are older than us. You see, the, but this is the funny thing, because I, I suppose one part of me healthily and you and anyone else probably always had those older people in a little bit of contempt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, granddad, you know. That's part of grown up. Stop, okay, stop, stop giving me, yeah, okay, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> stop giving me the, the generational thing. Yeah. And now that I'm not quite at that age, but getting there, it's all, all of a sudden, it's all relevant and pertinent, you know. Yeah, it's wisdom. that's life, I guess. Yeah. Uh, finish up on whiskey. You are a whiskey person. Am I? Well, you, I th- believe you are. Um, I, like, I like I like a drop or two. Yeah, yeah, but I think for the last few years, interspersed and punctuating your other adventures, there has been this kind of whiskey thing going on in the background, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a What's bit that of a about? misadventure. That is, okay. is that is, uh, I think, has the reset button on it might have just been hit, mm. um, which is good. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know about maybe this is another definitely one of those kind of arrogant things. Once you've sold a company, you think you could do anything. And uh, I, I was like, you know, you know what, what we need more of in the world? <laughs> <laughs> Irish whiskey. It's like 2011, right? Yeah. Irish whiskey and Putchin. You never see Putchin <laughs> out there, right? Putchin had had been um, hasn't been illegal since 1996, and it was only illegal for tax reasons, heart heart attacks, but. Yeah. Um, and this is this is like before maybe tealings were starting to kick things off around mm. 2012 or 13. But it, around 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 that time, there was a bunch of people starting to feel the same way that there should be whiskey, Irish whiskey shouldn't be dominated by three distilleries, and that we once, as an island, had a, 
a great craft industry related direct directly related to but also uh, on the periphery of uh, whiskey making so not just not just the, the craft of distillation itself but also everything that went into the bottling the 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 aging the barrel makers everything that went in all the farmers that um, supplied the the raw ingredients and communities benefited from this and um, you know it seemed a shame to me that through lack of investment in technology um, around the kind of 1800s um, and into the early 1900s um, the Irish whiskey industry got a little bit kind of complacent in and of itself and uh, then when the uh, when the um, prohibition happened in the US and the US was the biggest export market the the industry collapsed you saw a mm-hmm. lot of consolidation a lot of uh, distilleries going out of, out of business overnight and then when it came back on the Scots were like oh you you want whiskey well we've been investing in our technology we can we can make it faster and better than anybody else so and that's that's why we ended up with with having just three distilleries on the island so I thought that was a shame and a bunch of other people did and that's probably what's fueled the resurgence of it in the last five or six years and uh, my own misadventure came around thinking I knew what I was doing and reality setting in and it being very clear to me that I had no fucking clue what I was doing (laughs) and I probably had no business messing around with it. Um, I even went so far as to purchase a still uh, from China and um, got ripped off by Nigerian pirates along the way and um, what? oh it's a story for another day Adrian you don't no tell me now give me the 30 second version <laughs> what happened Nigerian pirates ripped it uh, off internet pirates um, so oh, oh Jesus um, so found this found this uh, manufacturer in China that made uh, made um, brewing and distillation equipment and um, to uh, uh, this may have changed, but at the time to get a license to distill in Ireland, you needed a, a capacity of um, a minimum capacity of eighteen hundred liters, and um, and that was kind of a barrier to entry. So if you want to if you want to uh, get an eighteen hundred liter still made, you're talking upwards of probably a hundred grand, right? Yeah. So I've found this um, this firm engineering firm in China that would do it for I think it was twenty two twenty three thousand. And again, this is fresh on the back of the acquisition. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'll drop 23 grand on a still. Like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so I'm, you know, in the, as a kind of a, a part-time, kind of in my spare time, I'm chipping away at this problem. And I'm, yeah. you know, putting together the pieces that would form a, a new distillery. And... Um, I was I was trying to take what I'd learned from tech, like do a minimum viable viable distillery rather than let's raise like ten million and do a, a kind of a tealings on it because, yeah. you know, that's something that was more suited to their background than mine. Um, so uh, anyway, found a supplier, placed the order. The order required um, uh, a thirty percent deposit, so I made that transfer to their bank in China, mm-hmm. and all good. They put the put the deposit, put the order in, and said that the date of shipping would be, I think it was sometime in August. This would have been about twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen, something mm-hmm. like that. And um, so the date the date comes and goes, and they they've missed it. They missed a the deadline. And they said that they were delayed, um, but the new deadline will be in September, or the new it'd be ready to ship in September. So I said fine. In the meantime, I found this independent shipping consultant. I wanted somebody that would just handle all the logistics and the insurance and you know uh, filing taxes with revenue for for importation of this equipment and that that person would just tell me who to pay when to pay them and would they would take care of all the paperwork and so i found someone that, that would do that which was great and um uh time came middle of september pictures were sent over everything was ready to go so um i communicated with with this uh, shipping consultant and um and and shared all the details, you know, uh, dimensions, the weight, everything to do with it. Um, and uh, then things went weird. Um, I may uh, the the company in China said so. We just need a balance of of payment, seventy um, percent of the price. Um, but we it's a different bank account now. And I was like, oh, hang oh, on a second. No. Uh, 
like, why can't it be the bank account I sent a deposit to? Um, which was a company, uh, a, a bank account in their name, in the company name, yeah. um, in the city that they were um, they were based in. And now they wanted it to send, uh, want me to send this to uh, to a bank account in somebody's name in a different part of the country. I think it was even in Hong Kong. Um, so I said, this is dodgy. I'm not sending you the remainder until you give me a bank account with your company name in it. And it was all the excuses like, oh, there was a, a dodgy transaction and the, the bank froze the account and we can't take blah, blah, blah. And at the time, I was actually transitioning um, out of Engineard and into, I did a short stint at Web Summit. And so I was really distracted, right? And uh, I wasn't I wasn't paying the kind of attention that I should have been paying. Um this went on back and forth, back and forth, and eventually they gave me bank account details of a bank in the UK with their company name on it. And that didn't seem unusual to me because I knew they had engineers in, Euro in Europe that would go and do um, kind of installation and maintenance. And so mm -hmm. I figured, oh, this is this is their UK entity and yeah. they'll just, yeah, okay, grand. So I sent the remainder over to them. And, um, um, and then they went. They went. They went even more weird. They couldn't give me definite delivery date, and couldn't get tell me when it was going to be shipped and where it was going to be shipped. And they, they just kind of dragged it out for another couple of weeks. To you know, we're getting into October now, and um, then all of a sudden everything goes quiet, and um, I start I start wondering what's what's going on. And like I said, I'd been distracted by other things, so it's entirely my own fault. And um, I started to investigate. I looked at the emails that had been going back and forth and I realized that the email address I'd been communicating on for the last month wasn't the same Spooked. as the email address that we had um, originally placed the order with. There was one letter changed in it. and um, Email redirection fraud. Yeah, it's basically. Um, so I went, uh, I emailed, um, emailed the original address. The very first, I went back to the very first email that was ever sent. So I knew that that was going to be somewhat legit yeah. and I emailed them and they said we haven't heard from you oh no <laughs> god we have we have we have you're still sitting here you sent us an email saying you've gone bankrupt and they oh, they forwarded shit. me a, an email written in in patchy English dodgy English like uh, um, saying you know very sorry gone bankrupt thanks uh, oh, you know and I'm no. like what so I, did, I never sent that and I looked at the email address that that was sent from and it looked just like my email address but one letter was changed in it and um, so, how much at this point had you actually transferred over to the crooks? Um, the goods of yeah, the goods of like the full amount, like twenty twenty three thousand. Uh, no, no, sorry, sorry, that the discount, the, the the deposit went to the real people. Yeah. so it was fifteen, sixteen thousand, something like that. Um, and um, so anyway, it turns out that the the uh, shipping co uh, consultant, his email had been hacked, oh. and. Somebody, somebody was, um, somebody was just looking at his emails, waiting, f waiting for the right moment. Had all the details, and then started to do a kind of a man in the middle piece of communication. So they would communicate with me, and they would communicate with mm. the the uh, engineering company in China, and then have the enough information to be able to sound convincing. But would um, uh, obviously their their goal was to defraud me of of money, and uh, they succeeded. In the meantime. Um, in the meantime, um, I had a problem. I didn't know if this was an inside job with with the, the Chinese company, company or if it was a, a third party. So I got, gathered all the email addresses together that had been uh, communicated on and I sent them all an email and I wrote a little bit on the benefits of having a, the ability to write some code. I wrote, I wrote together, um, put, pulled together about 10 lines of code to track the email, put a little embedded a pixel in the email and once that pixel was open, the email was open, the pixel would pop up, um, would text me to say um, uh, where where um, where the email was open from mm. and what kind of browser they're using. So not much information, but enough to be able to say where in the world. Mm. So um, 15 minutes after sending it, the email was opened up in in the Chinese city that the engineering company was in and it was opened up by the right ad the address that it should have been opened up by. So I was like, well, that's that's legit. Yeah. And then another 10 minutes later, it was opened up um, in Nigeria on an iPhone 6, wow. uh, 6 Plus or something at the time that was new, whatever the new, new iPhone was at the time. So, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a kind of a kick in the gut. Um, but... Um, so the moment you knew was... The moment when the you went back to the first email, 
Yeah, that, that it was, was. I suspected, but then this, uh, when I saw that, that like one, they had basically changed a, a B to a D in the and email that's address. the fifteen sixteen grand drop moment. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, but anyway, um, they still had a still, and I still wanted a still. So, um, oh, they, so you went ahead and yeah, they um, went and um, I mean, it was still going to be cheaper than what it would be to mm. get it made in Europe. Um, and the way I looked at it, it was like losing that money was kind of like the cost of doing business with China. <laughs> this is the optimist in me coming out, right? Okay. You just have to kind of like. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, went uh, they they said I said to them, look, we've we're both victims of fraud here, and if you hadn't missed a deadline, they uh, they wouldn't have had that kind of window of, of opportunity mm. to um, to do this. So um, uh, I. I proposed that uh, we we split the difference, so I gave them seven, and mm. they uh, they agreed. Yeah, they agreed. I had to go. I had to go to meet them though. They wanted to make sure they weren't being ripped off. So, Which is fair enough. Yeah, so I went over. You know, brought 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 the met the CEO, brought him a bottle of Middleton, and he told me he didn't drink whiskey. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I'm sure you'll find, I'm sure you'll find somebody to drink it. Yeah. We had a little tea drinking ceremony, and it was yeah, it was an experience. Um, That's unbelievable. And um, and then a month later, it turned up um, uh, in a in a container, and <laughs> this is where this is where you don't decide to start a new company and try and make whiskey at the same time because my energy was just focused on cohort. Yeah. So it kind of sat there for a long time, gathering dusk mm-hmm. dust. But I'm glad to say um, I have found a partner, um, somebody with a background in tech who has been making gin for the last while and um is uh is interested in um you know doing something with my equipment and uh, having me involved in some way so you know next time i'm on i might have something for you you never know um but it's early days but the still is is sitting in a warehouse somewhere at the moment is it yes okay yeah, it's it's not operational. I have to be very clear on that. Yeah. It's not operational. It's uh, it in fact has never been turned on, which right. is a shame. But it's in really good condition, mm-hmm. and it will be moved soon um, to um, to a new place that uh, is is an actual functioning distillery, mm-hmm. and uh, will be given a home there, and um, will be used for the purpose of making whiskey. So. I mean, you've an unbelievable life. I, have to say. I don't know, man. I don't. <laughs> You're an unbelievable. Um, it's been very, very interesting and entertaining, I have to say, talking to you today. Um, and I think we've run out of time, though. Yeah, so, I told you that was a long story. Uh, you, you, you were right, but it was well worth it. Thanks very much for coming to the studio. Thanks for, for coming me. again. Sometime. I appreciate it. So that's Eamon Leonard, who is the co-founder of Boundless with Dee Coakley and Emily Castles and all-round sort of stalwart of the tech scene here in Dublin. That's all we have time for this week, folks. From me, Adrian Weckley, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent, I'll talk to you the same time next week. Bye-bye.